I know that we can all agree that the last five months of COVID-19 has been a trial and a test of everyone's patience. There's no question about that. Then take into account the necessary battle to eradicate racism, factor in the upcoming election and the face covering decision and debate, and things can seem a bit overwhelming to say the least. So what can we do? How are we to respond? How can we make sure that we are glorifying God in such trying times such as these? Well, there are many ways that people are choosing to respond, both good and bad. But if you're a follower of Christ, I trust that you are responding in a way that pleases God. I mean, that's our ultimate number one objective. And I've learned that when choosing to please God, my best response usually needs to be seasoned with more grace, understanding, and patience. And that's what I wanna talk to you about today. See, unfortunately, things don't change overnight. That's not an excuse, but it's a ever-present reality. There's always a conflict or a tension between what needs to happen and what is happening. This is the tension that we often live with, and it's more easily managed than solved. And that's where patience comes in. The Bible teaches that patience is a virtue that all Christians need to exhibit as they seek to become the best versions of themselves, which is to be more like Christ. And as a child of God, and ultimately we are citizens of heaven, patience is required as we await Jesus's return, which will bring justice to all. But that's not a rally cry to just sit on your hands and do nothing in the now. I mean, I'm a number three on the Enneagram with a wing four, so that's certainly not in my nature at all. But sometimes the best response for me is most measured by what's happening on the inside versus what's happening on the outside. In the midst of shared challenges as a nation and our unique trials as individuals, our patience muscles are being tested. Therefore, we need to fully strengthen them, develop them so that we can exercise them more. Patience, it's defined in dictionary.com as the ability or willingness to suppress restlessness or annoyance. Give me a hand raise if you need a fresh dose of that this week. I mean, a fresh infusion of patience. Whether you're watching from the couch at home or meeting at one of our locations in North Aurora, Wheaton, Naperville, Monmouth, or Romeoville for a watch party, I wanna welcome you. I wanna also give a special shout out to those joining us today from Lift Church in Rochester, Minnesota. Grateful to have you with us, but for all of us, we all need a fresh dose of the characteristic that will help us with the ability to suppress restlessness or annoyance. Think of it this way. This summer, the beaches are all closed in the city of Chicago, so nobody's showing off their muscles, getting a tan, or kicking sand in anybody's faces. But as our country reopens and we find ourselves on the beaches of uncertainty with tensions rising, we Christians need to flex our biceps of patience as we do what God calls us to do. So how do we do it? Well, if you got a Bible, open it up to James chapter five. That's where these next six verses are headed as we pick up where we left off last week. We've been studying this letter chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and word by word. The title of the message today is Overcoming Impatience. And I wanna give you four simple exercises that if done regularly, 
will develop and strengthen your patience muscles so that you can do what God wants more effectively. And the good news, you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to purchase any special equipment or pay some trainer for these exercises because they are all found in God's word. We just need to take the time to dig them out and apply them to our lives daily and consistently. Again, I want to welcome Lift Church as they're joining us today. My wife Jody and, uh, and I have known Pastor Steve and Kim Dietrich for over 20 years. After he served on our pastoral staff here at High Point, we sent them out to plant their church. I've had the privilege of being there many times over the years. I've spoken and met with their leadership teams. Lift Church is a member of our High Point Send network of churches, and we've been helping them through a revitalization plan for their next, for their next season of ministry. That's something our network provides to individual churches. And sometimes our greatest growth opportunity is seated in the midst of our biggest challenge. I've certainly seen that to be true here at High Point in our church. And I know that's going to be true for you at Lift Church too. So without any further ado, let's get started. If you're a note taker, write down the first calisthenic to overcoming impatience. Trust God with what's next. Easy to say, not so easy to do. Notice verses seven and eight. James is gonna give us an illustration to help us understand that God is still at work in the world. He's not on vacation. He hasn't abandoned us. He is on the throne. It says in verse seven, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, the word translated patience in the original language, it's used 22 times in the New Testament. We see it three times in these two verses on the screen. It's actually listed four times in this chapter. It literally means to be long-tempered, as in don't lose your cool, or better yet, chill out. Or how about take it down a notch? I know we've all heard that before, but that's what we're called to do to exhibit patience in these trying times. But question, how long are we to take it down a notch to exhibit this patience? Well, as sometimes we can become a bit impatient about practicing patience, notice the end of verse seven, because it gives us the timeline. It says, until the coming of the Lord. So i.e., until Jesus comes back. But notice in verse eight, as James reminds us that Jesus can come back at any moment as he says the time is at hand, as in always, I repeat, always be ready. This isn't our final curtain call to less patience when he comes back, but obviously it's gonna help us to exhibit more patience in the now as he continues to take charge. But at times, as we wait, if we're completely honest with ourselves, it feels as if God is playing the long game, not the short game. And that's why we can become impatient in the face of so many injustices that we see and experience in our world. That's why James tells us exactly what to do by using a farming illustration. He writes, see how the farmer waits. The illustration hits home for my family because my wife Jody's dad was a farmer. He had an apple orchard in northeastern Ohio. He used to bring in an Amish crew to pick the apples twice a year. One older Amish man even asked Jody to marry him when he, she was only 14 years old. He gave her a ring and everything. Thankfully, 
for my sake. She accepted the ring, but she did not accept the proposal. See, my father-in-law, he, he's one, he was one of the hardest working people that I know. And most farmers are. But he didn't do this. He didn't wake up before the crack of dawn, head out into the field, throw some seeds on the ground flippantly, and then come back the next day expecting a bushel of produce to appear. Of course not. It doesn't work that way. If you're growing some tomatoes in your backyard, you certainly understand this principle. That's the point of James's illustration. Farmers do their part, God does his. Let me say that again. Farmers do their part and God does his. As the farmers wait, they have responsibility for planting, fertilizing, pruning, and then picking. This is called active waiting. And God, he's responsible for the growth. The growth that comes through the rain, the soil, the nutrients, all of which he supplies. They, the farmers, can't do it without him and he, God, won't do it without them. Just as a farmer waits on the Lord to prepare his harvest for him, we need to wait on the Lord to prepare his harvest in us. That's why it says in verse eight, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. I love that phrase, establish your hearts. Some versions say strengthen your hearts. Or maybe you're holding a version that says stand firm. The amplified version, they add keep them energized and fully committed to God. It's the same word in the original language that's used in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to describe Jesus's determination as he made his way up to Jerusalem to face death. As we wait for the change that God wants to bring in our world, we can't lose sight of the change he wants to bring as we trust in him with what's to come. In the midst of our waiting, we have a responsibility to plow the fields of our own hearts to make sure that they align with God's heart and God's mission, God's timeline. And if they don't, we got some work to do. I gotta just say it like that. That's why the prophet Hosea, he tells us, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. That's what his desire is, to rain righteousness. So what are you waiting on God for? Let that question sink in for a moment. For some, it may be a job or a spouse or even a child. For others, it's physical or emotional healing or the salvation of a loved one or that they would come back and return to the Lord. I mean, in some sense, we're all waiting for the changes in our country that will bring greater peace and unity. So let me ask you this. What's your part? What's God's part? See, we can't afford to mix them up. And it's not that you do nothing and he does everything. And it's not that you do everything and he does nothing. I mean, there's a balance that we must achieve as we press in and actively wait. Remember the farming example. He waited and did some things, trusting God for what would come next. Is there anything that needs to be pruned as you wait? Jesus himself said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. When Jody's dad died and they were getting ready to sell the farm, it was a traumatic and difficult time for all. 
But one of the things I, I just never forget is that it only took a year or two, maybe, of inactivity on this orchard for it to cease producing fruit. I mean, after all those years of working the land, since he was a little kid, how quickly it produced nothing. After they stopped doing their part, God refrained from doing his. It only takes a short time of neglect to quench the fruitfulness that God wants to bring to his children. Let's not be the ones, let's not make that be true of us as we actively wait on God and put our trust in him. The second calisthenic to overcoming impatience. Exercise number two, keep your attitude in check. Let's get back to the text in verse nine. It says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As we've been learning, as we've been studying this letter, brothers is a reference to all those in the family of God, brothers and sisters alike. Remember, this letter was written specifically to Jewish Christians to help them put their faith into practice during some very trying times as they were suffering for their faith and they were dispersing all over. And interestingly, despite such great tragedy, trial, and difficulty, James, he points both barrels at the whining and complaining. They must have had some backstabbing going on in the church lobby, some gossiping and slandering in the hallways, some negative posts on Twitter about the pastor. I mean, it happens. Remember, he went after it pretty strongly in chapter three, so there must have been a problem when he said, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James reminds me of a father who packs the family in the van for the long road trip, only to hear a few miles in from the back seat, are we there yet? How long is this gonna take? Or how about, it's my turn to use the iPad. Or why do I have to sit in the middle? Or like my girls used to say, stop kicking me. That's why James says, oh, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison for sure. With it, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. And then he says, my brothers and sisters, things just, they ought not be this way. Jody grew up in a home with an English mother where whining was simply not tolerated at all. I mean, she used to tell Jody when she was a kid, whining is never rewarded. That's a phrase that made its way into our home with our kids. And Jody, she still uses it today. Now, the only difference is she no longer has to use it with the kids because they're grown, but now she only has to use it with me. There's no excuse for an inexcusable attitude. Let me say that again. There's no excuse, none at all, for an inexcusable attitude. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why is this such a big deal? And why did James point it out? Well, the text makes it clear. God's simply not into it. He doesn't like it. That's why he says the judge is standing at the door. As in, you think you're gonna get away with this, but you're not. This is the kind of stuff, this backstabbing, this uh, saying things behind people's back and doing things in that fashion, this gossiping, it's gonna come back to haunt you. Keep it out of the church. Keep this scripture in mind. Write down Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. We've been here before during this series. Jesus says, on the day of judgment, you will give an account for every careless word spoken. I'll never forget this quote. 
I heard it from Chuck Swindoll a long time ago when I first became a Christian. It stuck with me ever since. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Jody and I were recently in a Verizon store. It was just us and this other lady with the two salespeople because they were limiting the number of people that were coming in. And we were taking care of an issue and this lady had obviously lost her phone and she was getting really frustrated because she couldn't get the help she needed. She wanted a phone, they wouldn't give it to her. She's trying to buy this new phone. She's late for work. She couldn't access the account because she wasn't the primary user. I've been in this place. The sales guy is telling her he couldn't do anything until the primary user gave her permission. She couldn't get permission because she couldn't get a hold of him because she had no phone. And when they gave her their phone, she didn't know the number by heart. They just kept going back and forth as the tension in the store, Jody and I are looking at each other, each other. It's, it's rising and the volume is escalating. Finally, she turns to the sales guy and says, can you just access my phone and get me the contact information I need so I can call someone else to give me the permission that you need so that I can get a phone? The guy's like, I'm sorry, but it doesn't work like that. She stormed out of there. I mean, there was smoke coming out of her ears. She was upset. Now listen, we've all been there. The temperature of a situation, because of maybe even circumstances that we can't control, it begins to rise and we respond in a way that we are going to regret later. Let me say it like this. Negativity brings inactivity when it comes to God. It's just as simple as that. Some will remember the most well-known example of that truth in scripture. It's from the Old Testament. It has to do with the people of Israel. God did these amazing miracles for them as he freed them from slavery and bondage. He provided them with manna from heaven. He led them with a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. God wanted to bring them into the promised land, but something prohibited it. It was their attitude, which was a direct result of their disbelief. They are described over and over again in the scriptures as a people that is murmuring and complaining. They second-guessed everything. They whined about the food, the accommodations, the leadership style, and everything in between. How quickly a bad attitude can spread amongst God's people and turn off his blessing. It led to God's immediate judgment as they wandered in the wilderness for over 40 years and they did not enter the promised land. They forfeited blessing from God. We don't want that to be true of us. We don't want to forfeit what God wants to do in our lives, in our families, in our church because of a bad attitude. Don't be the guy or the girl who can only see the glass half empty, who complains about everything, who never sees the good and only can point out the bad. Hey, critics are a dime a dozen, as they say. God doesn't want his kids to turn on each other and stab each other in the back. When it comes to leadership, you just can't please everyone. I mean, it's extremely difficult to be in charge. If you're in leadership, you've heard the statistics. As you make the decision and carry the weight, a third of the people will like what you're doing, but will never say anything, nothing, no word out of their mouth. Another third of the people, they will not like what you're doing and they will say something. And then the last third, they will go with the flow and they don't even care. They don't really care. Every leader has experienced this truth and the emails that come with it. 
I remember in the early years of the church, I used to meet regularly with a guy who was a very successful business owner in our church and in the community. He and his wife had actually, uh, she had become a Christian at our church and he had rededicated his life after not being in church for years. As a young pastor and leader, I would meet with them a lot, often to learn and grow because I, I wanted a mentor. But I started realizing that every time I walked away from meeting with them, a lunch or a breakfast, I felt more discouraged. I, I felt defeated. He had this spirit of criticism that made me feel like I wasn't doing anything right and I was doing everything wrong. He would second guess everything and constantly I felt like I was on the defense. Finally, he did leave our church and I just stopped meeting with him because it was detrimental to my mental health. I mean, it wasn't helping me. See, you need encouragers in your life, not just discouragers. We need people who look to build us up, not just tear us down. You need people who will walk with you during the hard times and not run away. I often think of this guy as I meet with young leaders now who ask me to mentor them because I don't want to come across like that. I've heard it said, nothing is so sour that it can't be sweetened by a good attitude. Let's make sure that our attitudes are on top of it, helping other people to succeed. Let me give you the third calisthenic to overcoming impatience. Exercise number three, believe that God's got your back. It's true. I mean, James mentions some real life examples next. He starts with the prophets who endured great trial and difficulty. Then he mentions Job, who he lost everything, his wife, his family, his money, everything, but still remained faithful to God. Notice verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Love how that says, it just describes God. Think of it this way. Despite how each of the prophets and Job, how they suffered, they all exhibited much patience. And God, he never left them alone. He never turned his back on them. He walked with them through all of it. Thus, they are honored for their steadfastness, as the text said. We've seen this word steadfastness before. It was introduced in James chapter one. Sometimes it's translated patience or endurance. It comes from a compound word of the original language, they, two words that come together and literally means to remain under. We've referred to it as staying power. It's this ability to remain under the pressure, the difficulty or trial, to learn the lesson that God wants to teach. It's the opposite of cutting and run. It takes great patience. And so the prophets and Job, they remained under the hardship and God had their back. God strengthened them. God empowered them in the midst of much physical pain and torture. That's why Job was able to say, despite many of the trials that he endured. Naked, I come from my mother's womb and naked, I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I mean, what an amazing thing that he was able to worship God through the difficulty as he sensed God sticking with him and having his back. This past week, Jody and I, along with Pastor Eric, visited Jim Whitmer at his home. Jim and his wife, Mary, attend our Wheaton location. 
They live right across the street from it and they can walk right to church. To know Jim is a chance to rub shoulders with the legend. And I, I don't say that lightly. He has attended, catch this, our church for 73 years. That's of course measured in First Baptist and High Point years combined. More of them with First Baptist, as you may have guessed. His impact in Christian circles around our globe, it's really been astounding. Jim found his niche successfully leading student ministry at the church and carved out space in photojournalism for over 50 years. His career was unparalleled, allowing him such unique opportunities as serving Billy Graham as his photographer on Billy Graham's Just As I Am autobiography book tour. He took the pictures Jim did for the cover of The Way. It's the Living Bible, which was the best-selling book in America in 1972 and 73. If you're born before 1960, that's not me, but you'll probably recognize the iconic cover as I snapped a picture of it when I was at his home and, I, and they grabbed it off the shelf. That was at the height of a youth movement that had great impact on the church as many of those kids became future leaders who discipled the next several generations. Here's a picture from Jim uh, that Jim took from the cover of Life magazine. And this was an event that he covered, and that's the picture that is, reflects it. It was in Dallas. It was called Expo, Expo 72. It was put on by Campus Crusade. Jim also served groups as he was sent on assignments to remote corners of the world as a photojournalist, journalist, documenting people and history as it unfolded. This is a picture I found, and it's one of my favorites. It shows Jim, who was flown by helicopter into Iraq to document the living conditions of those who had fled Saddam Hussein. This captures him as I know him, happy, energetic, and you can see a camera is never too far from his finger trips. Jim, he gives his best with a contagious and upbeat spirit and a brilliant smile. He's an encourager and an inspiration. He continued to do this even despite these past seven years as be, he's been fighting a battle with cancer. We were blessed to pray with him and read scripture to him this week. Jim looked at me with that joyful smile and just said two words, I'm ready. Then he began to share that when he was first diagnosed with cancer, he couldn't say that. But now after this battle, he could. Jim's a fighter for sure. I hope that I will display as much courage and faith, patience in my greatest battles as I've seen Jim display in his. See, Jim knows that God's got his back. Jim has been faithful. He has persevered and remained steadfast. That's why the verse that I think of when I think of Jim is found in James chapter one, verse 12. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Jim, we love you. We continue to pray for you. We are grateful for the example you have been to so many in the church and around the globe. The last exercise to overcoming impatience. Stay true to your word. It's interesting to me that James ends this section of scripture by emphasizing our commitments. Did he have in mind the commitment that we need for one another? Or certainly the commitment we have to have for the Lord? Or maybe the church, our commitment there? Or maybe all of these and more? Probably so. 
as James says in verse 12, but above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. And then Jesus, James's half-brother, he says this about our commitments as he warns us in the Sermon on the Mount, he, uh, Sermon on the Mount, and it sounds a lot like James. He says, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes and no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That's probably why James said it the way he did. He's quoting his brother, Jesus. The Bible speaks a lot, cover to cover, about commitment. The sacrifice of commitment is talked about in Proverbs chapter 15. It emphasizes the price that needs to be paid as we follow through with our commitment. It says that we're to swear to our own hurt. I told my girls when they were looking for a husband to make sure he's a Psalm 15 man. What I mean by that? Well, I did a message on it a long time ago. It's a psalm that lists the qualities of a person I would want anyone to marry if they desired to be married. And when my two oldest daughters got engaged, I ran each of their prospective fiancés through this grid before I gave them my blessing. Psalm 15 says, O my Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does these things will never be shaken. Both of the guys I interviewed for my daughter's hands in marriage, Josh and Steve, they passed the Psalm 15 test. They swore to their own hurt with the commitment that they were making. See, each of these passages, it hits the bullseye of commitment as they speak about the necessity of commitments, the sacrifice, and the follow-through that's needed. I remember when I was a kid and I wanted to quit something. And my dad, you know, made sure and he talked to me that he was like, I, you got to fulfill the commitment. You got to stay true to your word. And, and you got to, he didn't say it like this, but what he was saying was you need to swear to your own hurt. Maybe you had a dad like that too. Because when it comes to commitment, there's always a lesson to learn. There's usually an attitude that needs to be adjusted. And there's most likely a patience muscle that needs to be exercised. See, some people, they have a hard time saying yes, while other people have a hard time saying no. I call it the great chasm of commitment. It's really important for each of us to know and be honest with ourselves about which way we have a tendency to lean. Is it that we say yes too much or is it that we say no? Either we're overcommitted, which can result in too much responsibility, or undercommitted, which results in too little. I had my hip replaced about, it's been about nine weeks now. It was needed because of some bad genes and probably because I abused it over the years playing basketball. I've got three different kinds of metal in my right hip, so I'm really looking forward to setting off some alarms at the airport security. But seriously, the doctor said I'd be 90% recovered within eight to 10 weeks of the surgery. 
but then it would take a full year to get back to that 100%. As long as I do the exercises and the stretches, stay committed, and it hasn't been easy, but it's been worth it because I want to get the mobility back. I want to be free from pain. I mean, that's the goal, to run the 40 again in under four or five like I used to do, to do some reverse dunks on the basketball court like when I was a youth. Well, maybe I'm being a little too optimistic, but you know what they say? It's not that our aim is too high and we miss, but that it's too low and we reach it. If we want to overcome the impatience that we're often so plagued with, we often set our sights too low as God is willing and able to accomplish more in us and through us. We can't do it alone. I mean, understand that. Jesus said it the best. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing that will last, but we can do it through him and in him and with him. So as we close, which of these exercises needs a little more attention, just a little bit more work in your life? Is it trusting God with what's next? Keeping your attitude in check? Or maybe it's truly believing that God's got your back through this difficult season and time in your own individual life, in our country,